Welcome back to this week's episode of the Seatown Podcast, where Seattle business owners, entrepreneurs, and community leaders are invited on to share their stories with us. If you've been listening to this podcast, you already know that the reason I started it was to help support the community by sharing the stories of local businesses and community leaders, especially West Seattle, since this is where I live, it's where I work. I already have some great relationships with some of the business owners in this area. Uh, but as we're heading into the holiday season here in December, I really wanted to highlight some of the great local nonprofit groups that are doing uh, some really great work. And so that will be our focus in December. Hopefully these episodes featuring the nonprofit groups will help to uh, make an impression and encourage listeners to get involved in one of these organizations to help those in our community that may not be experiencing the same blessings that we are this Christmas season. Uh, I think that t- together we can make an even larger impact for the community and the individuals that these nonprofit organizations serve. Uh, today I'm joined by Amanda Hightower, the Executive Director of Real Escape from the Sex Trade, or REST, uh, which is a Seattle-based nonprofit group. Thanks for joining me today, Amanda. Yeah, great to be here. Uh, would you mind just giving our listeners a, a, a little bit of a background on what REST is, what, the, what they do, what their mission is? Yeah, definitely. Well, our mission is to provide pathways to freedom, safety, and hope for victims of sex trafficking or people involved in the sex trade. So we're... Uh, faith-based nonprofit in Seattle that is doing direct services, really providing opportunities for people who have been trafficked in the sex trade locally or around the country to have a place where they can escape the sex trade and start to rebuild their life and pursue their goals. Okay. Um, Now, I mean, I know myself up until a couple years ago didn't even realize that that sex trafficking Mm -hmm. was an issue, especially in Seattle. Yeah. Um, I mean, what do you, I mean, what do you say when people are like it? I had no idea that was that was a thing. I mean, how yeah. did you learn about it? How did you get into, into this? Well, yeah, I think it's actually pretty common that people assume trafficking is something that happens kind of in foreign countries or people moving people from one country to another, and whether it's in labor trafficking or in the sex trade. Um, but it is happening locally, too. Like, there's um, anywhere from three to 500 youth who are being trafficked hmm. in the sex trade in Seattle on any given night, um, likely up to maybe 3,000 or more adults who are trafficked in the sex industry locally. Oh. Uh, I learned about it back in 2007. I was working with homeless youth and young adults, and one of the uh, services that we did was outreach, street outreach, and okay. we were specifically working with sexually exploited young women up on North Aurora. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really know about the dynamics of prostitution or the sex trade. Uh, and as I started to get to know some of the women who were involved in prostitution, I realized that uh, the barriers were so significant for them to be able to exit the sex trade that everyone that I talked to wanted out but didn't feel like they had the opportunities to get out of the sex trade. Um, that oftentimes there was a trafficker or pimp involved that was keeping them emotionally bound or even physically kind of forced to stay in and I felt then like we needed to do something different than what we were doing just for kind of generally homeless youth or folks who are experiencing drug addiction to be able to provide better opportunities for them to exit the sex trade. Sure. So I mean with you know having kind of discovered that in wasted 2007? Yeah. uh, I mean what what were the steps and what kind of led you from awareness to actually now you founded rest is that correct yeah okay so what led you from there to starting an organization and moving forward yeah so it was about a year after that kind of doing that work with homeless youth and young adults where i decided that i really wanted to intentionally focus on this 
issue in particular. Uh, I was living in East King County at the time, and so I moved downtown Seattle and got connected with a local church that had a little bit more of kind of a mercy and social justice vibe to it. Mm-hmm. Um, approached some folks in the church about potentially doing some outreach to uh, women involved in prostitution, and uh, it took a little while to get things together, but in 2009, we had a an interest meeting for anybody that was really um, curious about this or considering getting involved in this kind of work, mm-hmm. and we decided to start with doing direct outreach uh, on the streets, into strip clubs, and to bikini barista stands, and really our aim was just to build relationships with women in the sex trade, mm-hmm. uh, find out what their needs were, um, see if we could build trust with them, and help them connect to resources. And as we got to know the women and uh, listened to what their needs were and help them connect to resources, we were also figuring out what resources worked and didn't work and sure. what resources were missing. And we were committed to building those resources or filling the gaps in services if something didn't exist. And that, you know, relationally based, community based, and uh, filling in the needs of mission is what drove all of our growth kind of from the beginning until now okay that's kind of how we got started huh. now you're uh used to go to mars hill right i mean what's yeah yeah we actually rest was started out okay. of mars hill okay mm-hmm. yeah mars hill downtown i actually started at ballard and then was at the bellevue campus and then okay. downtown sure that's i was on staff for a while so. <laughs> yep interesting um so i mean 2009 yeah i mean it sounds like it was there was a lot of learning as you, as you went, uh, you know, just trying to develop those relationships with, with yep. women that, that may be in need. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, what, I guess what did that kind of look like? You know, you, you, you started that, you're mm-hmm. going out, developing those relationships, seeing what they needed, what they, yeah, uh, yeah where the needs were. I mean, how, how did it kind of grow and, and change from there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think a big part in the beginning was just being a consistent presence and following through with what we said we were going to do and showing up whether if it was street outreach showing up every friday night and being where we said we were going to be and um, responding when folks would start to ask for help and intentionally trying to meet with people kind of outside of the sex trade where we could maybe talk a little bit more freely or have space to kind of to get to know them more and and understand what are their individual needs and then as we got to know more and more of them, what are some collective needs that seem to be pretty common that aren't being met? And, you know, one of the probably early needs that came out frequently was the need for safe, uh, a safe place to go, uh, safe shelter, housing, beds. And because of, we were also learning that because of the layers and layers of trauma that comes from being in the sex trade and, you know, the majority of folks who are involved in the sex trade also have a history of abuse before they were exploited. Yeah. So there's just so much trauma that's been compounded over the years that makes it hard to adapt to uh, mainstream services or services that don't really accommodate for what that trauma recovery looks like. So we just knew that we needed to figure out a way to provide safe places for um, women to go to where they could recover um, you know, ride the up and down wave of that recovery, Mm -hmm. Um, be welcomed even if they left, be welcomed back because we know it takes a long time to recover. Mm -hmm. And 
uh, we didn't have those spaces figured out when we first started, of course, and we were trying to figure out where those spaces existed yeah. or if we needed to build them. So it was a lot of learning about that and trying out different services in the community to see what would work and, and what wasn't working mm-hmm. and really inviting the women that we were working with to inform us you know, of what, what they needed and um, yeah, what was working for them and yeah. what wasn't. And I think there's kind of combined with that, we're doing the work and building the relationships. We're also doing a ton of research on the side sure. around brain development and trauma and um, mental illness and addiction and how can we provide the best quality of care it's not just good intention like that we want to you know build relationships but we need to know how to do it well in a way that's actually going to be effective sure as you're getting to know those those ladies uh, and hear their needs did you find that there was already resources for those needs you just had to connect them or did you guys have to develop something like yourselves or partner with other organizations or what happened there yeah it depended on the need Uh, there were some needs like that we could get into right away if it was medical support and services we had some good providers that we could do quick walk-ins same-day walk-ins for women that we were working with to access care right away that seemed to work really well Uh, there was some organizations that were doing kind of day services drop-in services for women that seemed to be working well Uh, there we did have a hard time finding shelter beds that worked well i think the whether it was too much structure no structure or too many people in one space um, not a real sense of kind of privacy or safety Mm -hmm. Um, all of those things mixed with these the trauma response um, led to there not really being a lot of effective shelter beds Mm -hmm. for the women that we were working with. So we would help somebody get placed in a shelter and then usually they would leave within a day or two days um, because of something related to the environment. And so we knew we needed to figure out a way to make a shelter space work, you know, for, for these women. Did, Did you guys find a solution to that or? It took a while. We opened our residential our residential program. It's a six-bed residential program. We opened in 2012. And it's a longer-term residential program, so a year. They can stay for up to a year. And um, we started small with just two beds, and then we expanded to six beds. Okay. And the first year went well. It seemed like the program model was working well to accommodate for this kind of trauma recovery process you know i think it's the thing to note about it is that when you've experienced years and years and years of trauma your brain kind of gets stuck in fight or flight mode so the littlest thing even if it's not a danger your brain might think it's a danger so they respond with fighting or or running away sure it's much bigger deal than it would be yeah so it's not just like you provide a bed and they'll come and they'll stay and they'll be so grateful and everything is you know good from there and so providing a semi-structured place with individual rooms and you know just kind of responding to the things that we had heard from them from them over the years about what was working what was not working helped to us to be able to build a program that was more effective um, than what we were finding in other places but the problem remained that we didn't have an emergency place so this is a long-term place but we couldn't do emergency placements in the same place because it destabilizes the whole environment so we still had this big need uh, until recently of emergency beds 
Okay. And just last month, we opened our emergency receiving center, which okay. is the emergency shelter with seven individual bedrooms okay. where women can come into immediately and stay for a short term mm-hmm. while they're kind of stabilizing and then preparing to move on to the next step. Sure. Now, the um, the more long-term uh, six-room uh, six option, is that kind of similar program as like the Renovo House where they take people who have been through like the UGM program and it provides a place for them to stay as they get on their feet and learn life skills and that sort of thing here? It might be a little, it might be a mix of the two okay. or in between. It's not really graduated housing. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's for 18 to 24 year olds and they might be just recently stabilized. They might be um, coming from a short-term shelter into our house or they might even be coming from a uh, scenario in which they are temporarily staying with family until they get into the shelter like they've left a trafficker or been able to escape a trafficker and are kind of waiting to get in so they might still be at kind of the very beginning stages of their um, recovery and healing journey and so uh, it's uh they don't have classes that they have to attend all day instead they build their kind of individualized program model so they get to say what's most important to them that they want to work on whether it's education or uh, getting a job or getting a child back um, that might be in this system Mm -hmm. and we kind of adapt their kind of weekly schedule around what their most important goals are and that gives them it kind of restores that sense of agency that sense of empowerment that they get to determine for themselves what they want to do and I think that helps them want to stay um, in that space Um, whenever you go from years and years of chaos and crisis it can actually feel really uncomfortable to be in a stable environment it doesn't feel normal you know and so when they get to work on the things that are important to them it helps them kind of offset that discomfort Um, and we make sure there's trauma counseling and life skills available and um, activities and mm-hmm. survivor support groups, those okay. kinds of things. I guess what, what is the scope of, of everything you guys do now, you know, from the outreach to mm-hmm. you know, getting someone out of that? I mean, what, what might that process look like? Yeah, so um, we'll just kind of run through a specific case that kind of, okay. I think, captures sure. a lot of what we do. Um, we have partnered with another organization to do text outreach online so we've moved away from street outreach we still do some but not as much Mm -hmm. to doing text outreach because most of prostitution has moved from the streets in onto the internet and um, so on a site where there's all of the ads kind of listed for under personal escorts where it's people soliciting for prostitution Mm Um, they usually include phone numbers. So our partner combs that, uses technology to send out a text to these phone numbers. And we send out, I think, 250 texts a week. And uh, it'll be a message from one of, our, uh, one of our employees who's also a survivor saying, you know, hi, I used to be in the sex trade um, for this many years. I'm out now. Now we serve um, individuals who are trying to get out of the life themselves would love to chat if you're interested if you need anything you know and people will start responding with like yes this is exactly what i needed or um we got a response uh, one of the recent times that we did it that was from a young woman who said uh i was i've gotten your text before but i just got away from my pimp 
um, now I can respond to you. Tell me, like, what do you guys do? Mm-hmm. You know, and ended up being able to meet with one of our community advocates the next day. So we still do the outreach, but we do it via text outreach. And sure. then we have a team of community advocates who actually work out in the community meeting with women who are trying to get to connected to services, but don't necessarily come into our drop-in center or mm-hmm. um, or call the hotline. And so they get connected to a community advocate, and the advocate will start to help them get connected to services at rest or to other resources, start to identify what their particular goals are, kind mm-hmm. of what they're wanting to do, and help them kind of make a plan towards reaching that. Yeah. Um, sometimes it will be... Um, like for this gal in particular, she was able to get connected to our drop-in center. We have some support groups, and so she's been attending the support groups and was able to get help getting a job, mm-hmm. and uh, she has a safe place to stay, so she's just working on kind of building healthy relationships and going through the healing and recovery journey. Sure. For somebody else, it might be uh, they need to actually come into our shelter stay for a while in their shelter and then maybe apply to move into our residential program or if they need help relocating it might be somewhere out of state that they um that we can help them get to if especially if they have a trafficker in town who might pose a threat of harm to them Uh, so yeah i think there's all different ways that folks can get connected to rest and Mm -hmm. kind of work through the different services that we provide um, and the one kind of outlier program that we do is our prevention team, which uh, goes into juvenile detention centers and works with young boys and girls in the justice system who um, will learn from our team about gender-based violence, and they'll do prevention work with them around, specifically around exploitation and okay. really focusing on empowering young boys and girls to work against exploitation instead of just avoiding it. Sure. How, how big is REST as far as, you know, employees and volunteers and yeah. amount of uh, gals that's able to help, you know, mm-hmm. each year, that sort of thing? That's a good question. Yeah, so we currently have 31 employees, um, which recently, you know, we were recently at um, almost half of that because we hadn't opened our shelter yet. So mm-hmm. when we opened our shelter and expanded our drop-in services, we significantly increased our staffing. So we have 31 employees and... Um, right around 50 volunteers and we serve anywhere from 80 to 100 um, women Um, occasionally a young man will also come in for services Um, sometimes boys and girls too who are under the age of 18 receive case management services 80 to 100 a month and um, total probably since we've started we've worked with over 1,400 individuals. Uh, we get about 40 hotline calls a month, which could be any anyone from a, someone who is actually in the sex trade who's looking for help, somebody who is um, with law enforcement trying to that maybe they've recovered a victim and would like to you know bring them into our shelter. It could be another service provider who's making a referral. But it's pretty busy. It's yeah. active. Sounds like it. I mean, what, um, you know, whether it's through the, uh, the face-to-face, you know, interactions or, or, or being on the streets, what, or what, what trends did you guys, do you guys see, you know, in, in that community as far as the, the needs of, of the women or, or how they respond? Mm-hmm. Typically? 
Yeah, so the trends, like what their experiences are or what their needs are. Yeah, so um, I think, so there's a lot of reasons why it it helps to kind of back up a little bit. One of the primary reasons why somebody gets involved in the sex trade is because of a relationship, an abusive relationship. So older man approaches a younger vulnerable woman or girl, um, you know, kind of, sells this dream of a fantasy life together, a loving relationship. She actually believes that they're in a romantic relationship and maybe she's um, running away from or has run away from an abusive home or dysfunctional family life or maybe she's in the foster system and doesn't really have roots anywhere and so feels kind of swept up in this relationship with somebody who is making her feel like she belongs for the first time, that she's seen, that she's loved, that she... um, actually could have all of the things that she hasn't been able to have um, so far. So she gets kind of swept up into it. And then, you know, maybe it's weeks or months down the road where he asks her to uh, prostitute. And it might be something like, hey, I just need you to do this one thing for me, just this one time. And then it becomes every day. Or, you know, look, you're already having sex. Why don't you just get paid for it? We're going to make our dreams come true even faster. So it could be any way that he goes about kind of getting her to um, engage in a commercial sex act. And because of her attachment to him emotionally, even if she just doesn't want to do it or or decides later that she doesn't want to do it, there's such a connection to the idea of that dream someday coming true that she'll Mm -hmm. stay. And then, you know, it's like a lot of psychological coercion that he uses uses manipulation and shame to kind of keep her in. Um, And that's not always the story. Sometimes it's a family member who's forcing their child to be involved in prostitution. Sometimes it's actual force, Mm -hmm. like somebody is taken, like, um, and forced and kind of used, drugs are used to kind of keep them kind of in the life. Um, But what we see most commonly is that there's, this relationship that has become kind of mixed up and into the sex trade and has kind of led somebody into this exploitive experience. And in the same way, it's going to be uh, a relationship that becomes the intervention. So the main need that we see in anyone that we work with is the need for healthy, trusting relationships, a sense of belonging, a sense of community, a sense of having a meaningful purpose with other people again and as that gets stronger for the women that we work with there's less of a draw kind of back into a relationship with a trafficker um, that may still have some hold you know on them so i would say that's probably the biggest need that we see outside of um probably you know the safe place to stay uh and then very significant need is um, economic sustainability. So the ability to make money, to actually get a, um, to be become employed and have a job and have income and be able to sustain themselves. Um, and that's can be really hard to do when they feel like, if they feel like this is really the only thing they can do is, you know, be involved in prostitution. And um, it's hard to make that switch from, um, having hundreds of dollars go through your hands every day, even if they didn't keep the money, it felt like this was a way to make a lot of money really mm-hmm. quickly to, you know, I'm going to apply for a job. I'm going to wait a few weeks to hear back. I'm going to may- interview, sure. maybe get the job and 
if I get the job and you know getting paid minimum wage and someone called the government is taking out taxes like so it just it feels hard to make that shift um even if they're more stable now because of it um it doesn't feel as powerful you know it doesn't feel as quick Mm -hmm. to be able to get ahead okay uh i mean it sounds like a very heavy emotionally draining line of work to be in i mean what what keeps you going i mean yeah good question it it is it's intense and um we hear devastating stories all the time um it can be really hard when we're not hearing back from somebody that you know we've been in relationship for a long time and you know worry about okay what's happened mm-hmm. um to her or to them in those situ- situations Uh, So what keeps us going, I think, are those times when we get to walk around and witness um, evidence of healing and recovery happening. You know, when I walk through our spaces and I hear laughter and bonding and, you know, it's like I get little glimpses of hope being restored. Um, When I hear about our um, some of the women that we work with getting jobs or getting their first car, it's always this big celebration. I think it's those we have to take the time to really celebrate each of those steps because it's significant um to to go through all of the trauma that they've gone through and be able to take these steps towards their own personal independence and self-sufficiency so i think focusing on those victories those wins are really important i think digging into our faith is also really important you know we're motivated at rest to do this work out of our faith and at the same time we don't want to become the saviors right Mm -hmm. so we I think digging into my faith for me lets me know that I have a part to play in this of like bringing opportunities for freedom, safety, and hope for sharing love and compassion with the most, some of the most vulnerable people in our community. But it's not, I'm not the savior. Like I'm not the one who's going to solve this whole problem. Like I have a part to play. And so even at the end of the day, when there are still needs to be met and there are still things, there's still gaps in services that need to be filled, that doesn't mean I need to stay awake all night thinking about that. Like I can rest in knowing that I, I'm doing my part and, um, hopefully we can recruit others to do their part and, um, yeah, just kind of rely on that to see it through and keep it going. Yeah. Uh, I mean, speaking of, you know, everyone kind of doing their part. Um, so I've got several, several friends that regularly participate in the, the December, you know, mm-hmm. uh, events, whatever. What um, is there any correlation with that? Uh, you know, as far as you know, their their mission is obviously you know similar to to be helping women you know get out of the sex trade and bring awareness and stuff. Yeah, can you, can you speak to that a little? Yeah, well, I think awareness is so important. Um, just like you brought up in the beginning, when people think about trafficking and they don't know that it's a problem here and and anything like dress ember like helps to raise awareness people Mm -hmm. are asking questions when people are wearing a dress all month long what does that mean what is this about and so to be able to tie it to specific things that are happening in our community and ways that we can respond Mm -hmm. to stop them from happening in our community is really important and uh, we partner with you know several organizations that do more kind of broad awareness events or strategic awareness events that are um, help to inform the community. And as the community becomes more aware of of what's happening, it 
kind of mobilizes a voice that says treating women as objects is not okay. Mm -hmm. And I think the larger culture has said and demonstrating that treating women as objects is okay, Um, whether it's in media or songs or whatever. And so when we get more and more voices saying it's actually not okay, that helps, you know, steer men, I think specifically away from buying sex, which is a big driver of this problem uh, to begin with. So I guess what what does rest do or, or, or I guess what, what, can we do whatever to kind of raise awareness of, of mm-hmm. the issues? I mean, is there, is there kind of an educational portion of, of, of REST? or well, REST has a, we do a quarterly training that community members can come to, uh, learn about the dynamics of sex trafficking, the sex trade, things that they can do um, to kind of get involved mm-hmm. or to um, help with this cause. Um, I think also, you know, anything from talking to other men about about it to talking to children about it kind of focusing on um raising um raising boys and girls to Mm -hmm. have a voice and to respect um kind of the agency and consent of women and to not objectify i think those are things we can do as individuals like within the home and in families and within churches within communities and um in businesses too, I think business businesses ending slavery and trafficking is one of our partners, and they work with business owners to develop um, an alliance where business owners agree to um, incorporate certain um, practices or policies mm-hmm. to help their employees become aware of this issue, to not use technology um, for the purpose of exploitation and those kinds of things. So I think there are ways for individuals communities businesses you know anyone to kind of get involved and help move this needle sure what uh, i guess what would that message sound like uh, i guess specifically i'm thinking you know talking about the larger cultural issues mm-hmm. you know I, I i seem to kind of i've observed kind of this duplicitous message of it's not okay to objectify women which is obviously true and i don't know anyone who'd say I think it is okay, you know, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know anyone who would say that, but at the same time, as a society, we're okay with pornography, which is exactly what that does. I mean, what role does pornography play in the sex trades and stuff? Because, I mean, generally what I hear is yeah. it's not hurting anyone. They're there because they want to be there. Yeah, pornography plays a huge role um, in its influence in our culture and the way that particularly men view women. Um, that average age of first viewing porn is 11 for boys so uh, if someone is starting to view porn at the age of 11 you can guarantee that the influence is going to impact how they engage with women or how they think about sex and um, pornography has this progression about it that it might start with something that's a little more softcore but it progresses pretty quickly into um, extremely violent um, sex acts and so I think I think the most popular form of pornography is actually um, pornography in which several men will be doing pretty aggressive sex acts with one woman. Mm-hmm. And if that is the progression that it gets to, and this is what a young teenage mind or young young male mind sees and thinks this is normal or this is expected or this is what women want or this is what men should do, sure. then they expect to live that out in their 
actual relationships. And when they find that the women that they're engaging with or in relationship with are actually not okay with that, um, then it, but they still want to play that out, purchasing sex is kind of the next step. Um, so obviously not everybody that views pornography is purchasing sex, but it certainly is a, an on-ramp to purchasing sex. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's an addiction that comes with pornography too. Like their brain is kind of going back to this. I want, not only do I want to see it again, but I want to see more and I want it to be, you know, more intense, different. And so it just kind of leads to eventually pornography viewing is not enough that there is this desire to act it out. Sure. There are plenty of women who used to be in pornography films who will say um, very freely about the damage it did by participating in that um, to them personally and and the influence they feel like they have contributed to then. Um, I think in stories we hear of girls that we've worked with and women that we've worked with, um, the use of pornography to kind of train them into what they needed to do um, was clear, was happening pretty regularly. Um, even filming uh, some of the girls and women and then selling it as pornography. Um, so I would say absolutely not all of pornography, not all of the videos that people are watching when they're watching porn are between consensual partners like or someone who, like, that's what they would be doing if they had other options and I think that's part of the conversation that should come up is but if you actually had other options is this what you would choose you know and I that's where agency and choice really becomes important in this um, societal issue yeah I mean you kind of mentioned the you know there's definitely an educational aspect of this raising awareness Um, people know that yeah, it's kind of underground, but it's it's an issue, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, just turning a blind eye isn't isn't good enough, you know. Pretending it's not there. Yeah. Um, what what are things that the people in the community can can do to, to make a difference or, or to help? Um, whether uh, it, either that's you know supporting organizations like like you guys, you know, monetarily or with volunteer mm-hmm. work or, or you know, what, mm-hmm. what does it look best? Yeah, I think. Um, one, being informed, I think coming to a training or an awareness event to learn more about the issue. Uh, and then I think everyone has a part to play in some way, whether it's um, becoming an ambassador in their workplace or in their community to talk about this issue and raise awareness. Um, and we have an ambassador program at REST where we help people kind of get to a place where they feel like they can um, share about this issue and kind of be informed and and give people kind of specific ways that they can also get involved and kind of carry it forward. Mm-hmm. Um, we have volunteer opportunities at REST for people to do behind the scenes work or do direct services. There's a pretty thorough vetting process, of course, but those are opportunities. We also have uh, like w- smaller things like in our drop-in center, we do a meal every um, Monday through Thursday night where folks can bring a meal to um, provide for the women uh, okay. a dinner meal. So there's small things. There are larger things. Um, obviously, financial support for uh, for rest is significant. Uh, I mentioned that we grew really quickly. That we have a lot of programs going on, and because of the intensity of the work and the need for um, staffing support um, to kind of help people through the 
pretty serious trauma recovery uh, adventure. Yeah. Um, it's pretty expensive sure. uh, to do this. How do you work. guys typically raise money for supporting the, the organization? Yeah, we're all privately funded right now. Uh, lots of foundations involved, uh, incredible individuals giving generously. Um, churches have been really supportive. Uh, and so we just continue to tap on those resources. Um, there's the potential for funding from the city that we're exploring um, as we've expanded in okay. opening shelter, but yeah, okay. mostly you, individuals. Okay, and do you guys uh, partner with or do any of the work with uh, sibling organizations or like uh, you know Triple X Church, which you know has a whole ministry kind of geared towards this, you know that sort of thing? Mm-hmm. We have friendships, I think, with several organizations around the country that are doing similar things. Mm-hmm. Um, we work uh, pretty closely with many other. Uh, residential programs that are in operation around the country, some um, churches that are doing more kind of broad awareness events, but because we're a direct service organization, we kind of focus primarily on providing the direct service, kind of filling those gaps, um, and don't try to do everything. So we don't do policy lobbying in Washington, but we partner with an organization that does, and we have our, we allow our work to inform that agency so they are equipped to do um, lobbying efforts mm-hmm. in uh, Olympia. And uh, so we figure, we say this is what we are focusing on and we don't want to get stretched too thin. And so there's several things we won't kind of take on as our task, but we partner with those organizations that are doing it. Sure, sure. Makes sense. Um, how, how can someone find out more about, about rest or, or getting involved? Yeah, I think we've got an awesome website up. Um, it's at IWantRest.com. Um, that's probably the best way to go online, kind of okay. read about rest. Coming to our training day, which is, there's information about it on our website too, under the events tab. Well, Amanda, thank you very much for, for joining me today. And uh, mm-hmm. hopefully this uh, will help raise a little awareness about uh, some of the issues going on yeah. Seattle and how people can get involved and, and help make a difference in uh, young women's lives. Yeah. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Well, that wraps up this week's episode of the Seatown Podcast. Make sure to check out our guest website, support what they're doing, and show them some love. If you liked what you heard on this podcast, let us know by writing us a very nice five-star review on iTunes and subscribing. If you want to hear more episodes or find out more about the podcast, you can go to our website at seatownpodcast.com. That's S-E-A hyphen townpodcast.com. You can also find out more about me and other projects I'm working on by visiting seatown.com. Today's intro and outro music is courtesy of the Fascination Movement. You can find their albums in the iTunes store. The Seatown Podcast creator and host is Christian Harris. This has been a Seatown Media production. Seatown.